0: Hi, I'm Mark Scott, Secretary of the New South Wales Department of Education, and welcome to Every Student, the podcast where I get to introduce you to some of our great leaders in education. Today I'm in conversation with Professor Patrick McGorry, a former Australian of the year, a psychiatrist known for his development of the early intervention services for mental disorders in young people, and for his role in reforming mental health services to better serve the needs of young people with mental ill health. He is Professor of Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne, Executive, Executive Director of Origin, the National Centre for Excellence in Youth Mental Health, and a founding director of the National Youth Mental Health Foundation, Headspace. Welcome to the Every Student Podcast, Patrick. Thank you, Mark,
1: it's great to be here.
0: Well, you know, what a challenging year it's turned out to be, and this year has thrown up a lot of challenges for young people and a total change to how we live our lives. What have you seen through the COVID-19 disruption so far, Pat, and how has it affected young people's mental health?
1: Um, I, I think, you know, as, as, as you and I know, um, young people, are, it's their main health problem, uh, even under normal conditions. And the kind of things that we've seen with COVID-19 where, you know, uh, contact with their peer group, which is a, almost like the lifeblood for young people, as well as their parents, of course, and their families, but um, is, is restricted um, if they are struggling, um, well, we have the social isolation um, as well, and and I suppose the loss of sources of pleasure and and uh, and uh, you know fulfilment in life too. And, and then there's like the anxiety, which probably hasn't affected young people as much. The anxiety about the virus, but but um, anxiety about their futures, superimposed on their general anxiety about the state of the world with climate change and all these other issues that they're concerned about. So. Um, you know, and then the threats to their uh, education and 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 uh, employment, which is is really going to be a very realistic threat. You know, uh, with a recession on the on uh, on the horizon here. So, so I think that bit of a perfect storm actually affecting young people, and it's coming out in the survey data that we're seeing as well. And at the same time, despite telehealth, their access to care is reduced. You know, we we we've, mit- we've mitigated that a bit, you know, or a lot with with telehealth being funded by the federal government, but. Actually, the drop-off in new cases presenting to Headspace, for example, it's about 50% drop and about 25% drop from for, uh, across the board. So,
0: so and what do you think good. contributes to that? Well,
1: I, I think it'd be great to hear from Jonti and Angelica, who we, we'll introduce in a moment. But, but um, you know, um, I think it's a mixture of just a uh, reluctance to seek help, perhaps, you know, in, in the current climate, um, and also the difficulty in actually finding people to, to, to help the federal government's talked a big game in terms of um, you know, crisis lines and, and you know, we're all in this together type of rhetoric and it's okay not to be okay. So positive messages about seeking help. But when you go to seek help beyond the crisis line, there's a bit of a gulf and, and um, there are waiting lists in, in headspace which the government is also trying to address. But practically for young people, it's kind of hard to find the right sort of help um, at the moment, um, relatively speaking.
0: Uh, it it was such a traumatic summer with great bushfire disruption concern about climate you know an anxious summer I suppose for many is there a sense that um, the COVID kind of is an overlay on the underlying condition so if people were anxious concerned were were challenged by mental health issues, issues in advance of the pandemic that the pandemic layers over the top of that and makes things worse
1: yeah, that's a great question, Mark. Um, I mean, if you look at all previous disasters, I've actually been involved in a couple. You know, from a mental health point of view, especially the tsunami, for example, um, um, you see uh, a, a sort of a wave of temporary distress and and uh, mental ill health in, in everybody. You know, that's that's exposed. You know, and that's that's everybody in COVID. And, and that settles down in most people um, without causing a need for care or professional help. So we don't pathologize that sort of reaction too much. On the other hand, we, we do see an increase in, in new cases of people who hadn't been unwell before and exacerbation of existing um, mental um, problems with people with existing mental health conditions. So so there is a rise in need for care, I, I would say about 20, 30% in most disasters. Um, and in recessions, it's even worse. You know, like the Great Depression or even uh, the, the GFC, um, we see rises in suicide. and We see rises in um, in, in mental ill health. So this is—it's not hard to predict. And we've done modelling with uh, Sydney University and, and also our own people to predict a, a rise, probably about twenty thirty percent, in significant need for care. So that most people, you know, probably get through it. They're resilient. Um, others, others, um, you know, really struggle.
0: And the, the circumstance of young people having to be at home for a period of time and perhaps with their parents uh, suffering from anxiety or the stresses of life bearing down with parents, that, that period of lockdown, what, what are the risks and challenges for young people in that setting?
1: Well, well, I've been doing telehealth during this period and I've seen mixed reactions. Some, some of the young people sort of find it actually it's been okay they they've had more time with their families and and uh, they've found it easier to study without the distractions of the school environment Other, others have found it very painful so they miss their friends they they can't wait to get to get back to school and um, you know i think um, it's been it's you can not with young people i've learned it's it's not always one size fits all it's um it's uh, and it'd be great to hear from the young people here today about that too
0: and and just before we go to them uh, one of the things that we've thought about it. I mean, it's all moved fairly quickly. The lockdown lasted several weeks, but I suppose it's fair to say we've got young people going back to school earlier than we may have thought when the uh, lockdown began. What are the challenges that that some young people might face on the return to school, ha- having emerged from home where they've been, in a sense, locked down for weeks and weeks?
1: Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I think that that's something that um, um, I haven't really uh, had heard a lot from the young people I've been looking after personally. Um, so again, it'd be nice to hear what Angelica and John do think about that. Um, I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's a change, it's an adjustment, isn't it? So they had to adjust one way, they've got to adjust the other way back. Um, it, 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 I think things like bullying might've been um, a bit less, you know, uh, you, you would think, you know, when people are homeschooled or, or and that when that's happening all that cyber can continue I suppose but maybe some of the stresses were, were reduced and they'd be re-exposed and that's one thing that occurs to me but I think um, I think everyone's been a bit um, strung out if I can use this highly technical oh. term <laughs> <laughs> by the whole experience people might be a bit uh, you know um, exhausted and a bit uh, over it you know by now and, and um, I don't know. It'd be great to hear well, what
0: you. Well, it was interesting. I think one of the things we found in New South Wales, we had a deliberate strategy around a staged return to school, so that we said, "Well, let's have everybody in for a day a week," and we did that for a couple of weeks. And okay. when yeah. we were questioned about it, you know, the answer was we we felt that we needed to build confidence in the system again, confidence for parents confidence for teachers and the adult staff who worked at a school, but yeah. also confidence for the students that school was a safe place to be, we could get back to normal operational settings. We needed to build confidence over time. And I think we look back on that now and think that was quite a successful approach. And and we're glad we did it and recognize that this had all been traumatic. Yeah. And disruptive, and we needed to kind of build mm. confidence in coming back into the system.
1: Well, that makes a lot of sense, Mark. Because even from a psychiatric point of view, there's a thing called graded exposure, which is a way of dealing with anxiety um, and, and, and phobias, and, and, and uh, I suppose so. So, so you, you basically don't you don't throw people in the deep end. You you gradually you know expose them to a, to a stress or and give them time to adjust and build their their confidence. Exactly as you've said. So that was a very wise thing to do. I think.
0: So Pat, at Origin, you've you've had a um, long career in working and addressing mental health issues with young people, and and part of what you do is engage young people to advise and support the research you're doing. Can you talk a little bit about that and introduce Angelica and Jonti to us? Yeah, sure.
1: Um, well, look, um, yeah, you know, I've been working in early intervention for young young people my whole career really since the you know mid 80s really gradually evolving in about over the last 20 years into into developing new systems of care with with support particularly of the federal government on that on that front and that's where headspace came from Um, but um, what we learned you know over the last 20 years is that we we absolutely can't do this um, without the fundamental and, and central input of young people both in the clinical care sense developing new systems of holistic care and also in the research sense, because Origins is a research institute as well as a you know, a provider and developer of clinical services. And you know, I, I've got to say, it's been an absolute joy and a revelation over the last 15, 20 years to, to have cohorts of young people like Jonti and Angelica helping us, advising us, guiding us in how, how to make a service or a research project actually work. So it, it's fit for purpose, um, it's, it's focusing on the right issues and the culture of of both the clinical care and the research feels right you just got to walk into one of these services where young people have had a voice and you feel comfortable you feel welcomed you feel you know at ease you know that's the name of a dutch copy of headspace it's called at ease so so i think you know you can't really put it into words but i just want to say we're so grateful um to, to a whole series of young people over over that period it's also a feature of all the headspace centers around the country and so you know i think um, we've been very, very fortunate to have this in a, you know, the, tech, the kind of politically correct term is co-design, but mm. but it really is. You know, our new facility at Origin, which is like state of the art, we we privileged to be been in third world type facilities, but finally we got a nice facility and it was co-designed with 168 young people and won art, architectural and cultural awards, and 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 that's all down to the partnership that we have had. So so it's a great pleasure today to introduce uh, Jonti and Angelica, uh, who are. Um, you know, young people that are playing those sort of roles.
0: So, thank well, you. Well, welcome both. to them and uh, thanks for coming along, Angelica and Jonti. I mean, the people who listen to this podcast are fundamentally educators, um, teachers, and those who work in the Department of Education and research centres around the country, also parents as well. But we call it the Every Student podcast and we're trying to put students at the centre of our thinking and insight. I'm wondering if you could tell us. What are the factors that you think we need to be engaged in around providing the right kind of support for young people, particularly young people who are dealing with mental health issues as they deal with the disruption of COVID-19?
2: I'll jump in there. Um, Thank you for having both myself, Um, I'm Angelica and Jonty. Um, on this podcast i think it's really cool that we get to have a voice um, on a topic like this um there are many factors that i believe should be focused on and um i'm going to speak on behalf of my many siblings i'm one of nine so i think i've got i've seen i've seen it all now with um their experiences in high school and primary school um during this pandemic Mm. and one of the biggest things is. it's, it's really important that students don't feel like they're not, like, you know, mental health supports are clearly tra- like transparent to them and what is available to them is made clear from the beginning. Um, what I've noticed in my siblings has been a very big increase in in anxiety and worry and fear about the future, what the future looks like, looks like for them. One of my brothers is in HSE right now, so, you know deciding what he's going to pick for next year this global pandemic has really impacted him um, and the way he's gone about his study right now and so it's important that um, educators think about those factors about the future um, and not knowing uh, students not knowing what is readily available to them um, making that clear and transparent to them and also the options that are out there in terms of um, you know how you know supporting them with their future choices and especially career going um, going past year twelve if they are currently in year twelve um, that might just help to reduce a lot of the anxiety that um, some of the old, older cohorts are experiencing. So
0: providing confidence the, where yeah. the opportunities will come and that in a sense universities and employers are going to be trying to look after young people and putting making sure there's awareness of the range of options that exist during the disruption
2: yeah definitely um and i think on top of that it's you you brought up um before the you know the impact of stress um the stress life of parents um and other people in the in the household um although some some students may have not been directly impacted in terms of their mental health i know that their parents or their carers may have and that has a flow-on effect and i've definitely seen that in myself let alone you know my my own siblings how they've been feeling having to cope with extra demands at home um, and in terms of caring for, caring for each other, other roles, just supporting um, my parents as well. So that just adds extra stress and worry um, and just a loss in their ability to concentrate too um, on school. So it's, uh, those type of things is really important to think about. Um, but then I wanted to mention also, um, there's a lot of students, like I, I have one sibling who's in an inclusive education school. Um, And that has been a very different, um, I've looked at things very differently um, because of how his school has approached it. And he has an intellectual disability. um, And how this pandemic has affected him is that he's had a deep loss in connection um, Mm -hmm. to his teachers, to friends that are really, really important to him and his development. And I can see, although he can't communicate um, this like how he's fully feeling in terms of mental health, you can see it in terms of his behavior so he's feeling more anxious he's feeling much more worried on edge a little irritable um, when it comes to specific things and um, that change from suddenly suddenly stopping school to then um, going back he didn't go back he didn't go back immediately um like my siblings did in the stage in the staged model Um, he went back when there was the full return Um, just that switch that transition is really difficult for a lot of um, these students that go to these schools as well and have these feelings um, that affect their mental health. So it's really important to think about how transition affects students um, yeah. that goes to these schools too.
0: Thanks, Angelica. I mean, they're great insights. I was wondering, John T around, um, Angelica was talking about the challenge, say, of HSE students thinking about what lies immediately ahead for them. Um, do you think young people have been overwhelmed by the the broader context of, of what's happening? Not just their own work and their own studies, but look, this is a pandemic sweeping the world. It comes on top of climate change. We have all these protests that have been erupting in recent times about entrenched racism in our community and the way authority has acted in the face of that racism. I mean, it's an age of anxiety and reasons for anxiety would appear to be apparent for all members of the community. What about that, you know, being a young person in the context of, of concerns rampaging all around us?
3: I think young people are in a position where you can look forward to the future. Usually there's that excitement of where are we gonna go? What's gonna happen? And I think, especially now, young people are having a really important role in shaping what happens. Um, And I I kind of get that with working with um, Origin and being on the Youth Research Council. It's amazing that um, older adults are engaging us now, but I think just everything adding up, the climate emergency, coronavirus, the bushfires, now the Black Lives Matter movement, it can be quite overwhelming. And for a young person, it can be hard to see where to start when there's so many layers to what's going on in the world. And... Just looking forward, instead of that excitement, there's now trepidation. Um, Yeah, and especially for people in primary school or younger, like usually, you know, the world seems like an exciting place, but I think now it's weighing on people a lot more. And that, of course, negatively impacts their mental health.
0: So Pat, what advice should we be giving to teachers and parents in helping young people who who might just feel overwhelmed wherever they look, and that's been their experience of the last year, and it just all seems to be getting worse in some respects. How do we help young people just um, be, be secure and confident in the moment?
1: Yeah, I, I think, um, just listening to what John T was just saying, um, you know, I think having honest conversations is really important not patronizing young people you know i think it's a tendency to sort of you know patronize young people from our age group and their parents or their parents maybe not really understand but listen listen to what they're saying but probably maintain a pretty hopeful attitude for the future i think just picking up on what johnny just said you know hope is, a, is an incredibly therapeutic you know commodity and i found you know that's one of the things i found when i first got into psychiatry that was there was, wasn't was much hope there you know when people developed a mental illness or moment so hope is a is a life-saving commodity actually you know so but it can't be just blind hope it's got to be you know something that's sort of dealing with the issues that that, that, uh, that you and johnny both raised and, but there are there is a realistic issue here isn't there with all these things that have come up like racism and, and um, climate change and so on and and the, even the pandemic is just, it's a threat so so life is tough you know at the moment so being honest being prepared to face it but you know knowing that that people have got through these periods in the past and uh, you know um it's a bit of a roller coaster life even individually and certainly collectively it can be like that so i suppose parents can take take that approach and try to be strong and hopeful and 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 uh, the parents would be struggling as well you know um we probably can see that too mm-hmm. can't we uh, we definitely they're drinking more that's for sure yeah.
0: One of the things we, uh, we were talking about, the staged return, and, and one of the reasons we wanted every student to be in school at least one day yeah. a week was so that teachers could eyeball them, could could see them. We know that that connection between teachers and students at schools is so important. Yeah, if there's a lot of uh, reason for concern in society, what should teachers and parents Uh, really be looking out for with young people if in fact they are concerned that the young person is really struggling with an anxiety in a significant way what would your research and experience show are are signs that parents should be alert for or teachers should be alert for?
1: Yeah um, that's the great and that was a question that was very relevant even before COVID actually to have and and teachers you know I've got to say um, I've got a colleague who's done research on uh, with teachers in rural and regional uh, Victoria and found that teachers are kind of, you know, very worried about um, the mental health of, of, of the students. And I just thought it was very touching in the pandemic. Lots of teachers were saying how much they miss the students. So they really, they really care about them and they, they've got a bond with them. And and they know when, uh, quite often when a student is, is struggling and uh, where they're a bit hamstrung and they get trained by Beyond Blue with this BU program and stuff like that and how to recognize stuff. So teachers are very good at recognizing when the students are uh, Struggling, um, but then they don't necessarily get enough backup in in helping the student, and um, so there might be school counsellors, but you know they're pretty few and far between, and, and and the prevalence of the need is much greater than the availability of the of contact. In Victoria, there are things like docs in schools, and 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 headspace have been strengthened a bit to respond to to referrals, but. You know that that step in the pathway, getting some expert help, and how to do it in a non-stigmatizing way—that's the the challenge we haven't mastered yet. And 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 uh, you know, I think it's very very important that we build that. And in some some smaller communities, you know, we, we might have a headspace in a country town of say twenty thirty thousand people, but then there's a few communities up the valley, you know, where there's maybe seven or eight thousand uh, people, and there's a school, but the kids there don't can't get to the headspace. So so there's a kind of a access problem there for them for the next step in the pathway of a student needing help I think and the teachers need you know act, um, to be supported and, and have someone to talk to about kids that, that they, they are struggling with in the class perhaps as well. So there's a lot more work to do on that front mark I think.
0: You, we were talking earlier about the need to be honest and to provide a, a pathway to hope but in a context of the reality which we're dealing with. How open do you think the discussions need to be around mental health and mental health challenges facing young people and that that's part of the dialogue in a school setting? Angelica, how important do you think it is that we're talking about all these things at school with students?
2: Oh, I definitely think it's extremely important. Um, and. I know students are, from what I've seen in my context, they're ready to have more of these conversations. Um, And I know the teachers are too, like just following on what Pat said, teachers are doing such an amazing job right now, um, trying to connect back to students um, the way that they had connections before and um, capitalizing on the fact that, you know, all of us collectively in schools want to see a hope for a future. And so let's talk about it, Um, given, Everything that's going on, I know right now, my my siblings are already having conversations about how racism has impacted um, them in the school setting, on top of the pandemic and on top of the bushfires and on top of the climate, um, you know, change like situation that was going on, and um, they're having that more openly with their teachers now. And I've seen a change in their confidence about where to go forward. I definitely think we have a good chance now as a society um, to really have. Uh, more of an open conversation, whether it's on an individual level or with students in year groups, um, like only or as a whole. Um, I think trying it all would be good, um, really, to just make sure that um, you know as many young people are able to talk about this um, and and really be and reduce the stigma that exists um, regards regarding talking about mental health, and that's inclusive of parents too. Um, it's important to have parents in that conversation as well, um, so that when students go back home, they're able to have more of that open conversation um, on mental health and how all these situations have been impacting them um, too. So yeah, very I mean, key. I think
0: it was one of the striking things about the public debate that emerged through the disruption, through teaching and learning around COVID-19. Yes, there was concern about, you know, students' progress in literacy and numeracy and preparation towards the HSC. But just as relevant, I think, and central to the conversation was the wellbeing discussion and the sense that um, attending school and the connections made at school were a pivotal part of the wellbeing of young people. And as Pat said, teachers missed the kids, but the kids missed each other and miss the school, and miss the teachers, and that miss okay, that yeah. important part of supporting infrastructure that perhaps we've underplayed in the past.
1: Well, can I just say something about that? Um, we use the term scaffolding. You know, how, how do you get to be a, a grown adult? You know, grown-up adults. Um, it's like a building. You know, and, and to, to to achieve that, you know, uh, milestone, you have to have scaffolding around you as you as you as you move from childhood to adulthood. And, you know, the parents are obviously in the family are one part of that. The school and the educational structures are a very important other part of it. And when that's taken away, like it has been recently, that scaffolding's kind of missing a bit. That's an, it's an analogy that we often use. And we've got to try to strengthen the scaffolding. And if young people develop mental ill health, then people like me and, and our, my colleagues become part of the scaffolding for a while. So so it's a, it's a, analogies like that are really helpful to understand what roles people actually play in this process, I think.
0: We're just about of time, but Pat, I just wanted to give you the last word. I, in the time that I've known you, you're a tireless crusader for appropriate investment in uh, mental health research and support service around mental health. Given the disruption we've seen and given the pressure that COVID-19, climate change, bushfires, now Black Lives Matter brings to bear on the community. What do you think are the important public policy priorities to supporting strong mental health in our community now?
1: Well, I think, um, thank you, Mark. I, I think there's, there's two foci. One is, is like the preventive one that you've been alluding to and, and, and how, do you, how do you sort of reduce the threat, you know, and the impact. Um, so that, in, in that sense, um, sticking with young people, um, we've got to make sure that that scaffolding is protected you know as best we can whether it's, it's education or employment over the next receipt the period of the recession that is the biggest threat <clears throat> it's very very potent and the government's probably trying to do that with job keeper job seeker those sort of things um, but it, it's, it, needs, it needs huge sort of inve- investment and support uh, especially around the tertiary sector too you know because the universities are in deep trouble now um, so that's one level. Um, what can we do to kind of reduce the impact of this this kind of um, this recession we're we're entering now, and, and uh, the disruption and, and threat? Second thing is, if we can't prevent something, whether it's heart attacks or cancer, then we've got to provide early early intervention and and a safety net so that people get expert help as soon as they actually start developing the need for it. And in mental health, as you know, we talked about before many times, it's just not there in the same way as it is with physical health. So um, the governments have built some parts of the safety net, so to give them some credit, you know, I think Greg Hunt in particular strengthened his base. You know, but, you know, there's a lot of holes in that safety net and, and it needs to be much stronger if it's gonna uh, stop people falling through.
0: Well, I wanna thank all three of you today for your contribution to our conversation. Uh, Angelica, Jonti and Pat. This has been a central issue for our teachers and school leaders, how we create an environment where young people can flourish so that every young person in our schools is known, valued and cared for. Thanks for your leadership. Thanks for your great research. And thanks for joining us today on the Every Student Podcast. Thank you, Mark.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: And thank you for listening to this episode of Every Student. Never miss an episode by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice or by heading to our website at education.nsw.gov.au slash every student hyphen podcast or if you know someone who is a remarkable innovative educator that we could all learn from you can get in touch with us via twitter at new south wales education on facebook or email every student podcast at det.nsw.edu.au thanks again and i'll catch you next time